Welcome to the Weekly Review. Roman here. It's getting to be the end of December 2018, and we're here to bring you some news and some music. Today we'll be playing music by Sylvester from the 12 by 12 collection, which I was very gratefully gifted last year. Uh, Sylvester passed away about 20 years ago this past week on December 16th, so I thought we would honor Sylvester by playing a lot of Sylvester's music today on the show. I'm feeling a bit worn out, as per usual. That's how I often begin the show. We're broadcasting live in the Mission District here in San Francisco. We're on Ohlone land. Thank you so much for listening in. I'll provide a trigger warning, so we'll be talking about current events and things that are happening here and uh, and around the world. We'll see what we get to. It's, I feel definitely very overwhelmed, and at the same time, I still push myself to be here. I've been doing the show for a little over five years now, and I feel it's important just to get the word out about what's happening and to provide the narrative of what's actually happening since there's corporate media and other entities that would rather folks not know what's happening or spread falsehoods. So that's one big reason why I push myself to show up. So thanks so much for listening. I don't know if you're listening today as we're broadcasting live or perhaps in the future. And if you're interested in listening to previous shows, you can check us out at mutinyradio.fm. I'm going to start up with, I start with a rant. I'm just, there's so much to even get to. I don't know where I'd even start. And so if I'd at least provide some information and while there are a lot of things to feel a little bit hopeless about, it feels difficult to talk over a uh, Sylvester song too. And it's also just the music's so joyful and I feel uh, not joyful right now. However, something really important are ways that folks can be proactive and help out. And there's also just lots of different ways that folks can help out. So one, the first story I'll start off with is for folks in, in San Francisco, one thing that folks can do. And I'd imagine this is similar for folks around the country as well, if you are able. And 48 Hills posted an article, and I recently shared it on our weekly review page, which is you can find at facebook.com forward slash weekly rev. We post news articles there. So if you'd like to share this and or read it uh, with more, you know, more depth and post it in your circles, I highly recommend that. So this comes from the 48 Hills. Uh, Trans women from the migrant caravan need SF sponsors. LGBTQ people are facing danger and death in detention. Advocates want to place them in immigrant-friendly Bay Area. This is written by Marky B, and it came out today, December 21st, 2018. Transgender and other LGBTQ people who join the migrant caravan to the U.S. border seeking asylum are having a hard time finding sponsors to live with in the United States while their cases are being heard. Instead, most are languishing in a dangerous custody and detention system, which saw the death of 33-year-old trans woman Roxana Hernandez in the spring. Evidence suggests she was beaten while in custody. And a seven-year-old girl... Uh, Jacqueline Call, more recently. In the latest exodus, uh, which I accompanied, there were at least 53 trans women, Elena Vermeulen, a transgender detention release specialist for the Santa Fe Dreamers Project, told me over the phone, there are at least 100 GLBTQ people already being detained. With Roxana's death and what we've seen on the ground, this is an urgent situation. The migrants are fleeing violence, bigotry, and economic distress in their countries of origin. Women who obtain sponsors can be released into their care while their case works 
its way through the legal system. The women's asylum cases have been described as a slam dunk by Santa Fe Dreamers Project Executive Director Allegra Love in a BuzzFeed article last month with a very high success rate. It can take several months, though, and sponsorship requires adequate housing and financial support. Sponsors must be legal permanent residents of, of or U.S. citizens with a steady source of income and no criminal record. LGBTQ plus com- competencies and an awareness of trauma-informed care are also advantages, but you don't have to be LGBTQ. To sign up to apply to be a sponsor or host LGBTQ asylum seekers, or for more information, uh, see this Google Doc, and they provide a link to the Google Doc in the article, or email info at santafedreamersproject.org directly. And I'm looking now at the, the Google Doc, and it has some more information, and you submit your email address, your name, phone number, the city you live in, and a few more uh, questions about how many folks you can host and about how long you'd be able to host, um, whether or not you've experienced working with or supporting uh, queer communities, and just a f- uh, some more questions as well. So if you go to facebook.com forward slash weekly rev, we've just posted the article, or if you go to 48 Hills, you can find the article there as well. Um, getting back to the article, we're trying to build as big a network of potential sponsors as we can so we can pair the individuals and have them released, Vermeulen said. We're also looking for accompaniment teams and social, excuse me, and support uh, networks that can help with things like getting groceries, making appointments on time, and acclimating to their new environment. The San Francisco Bay Area has a very favorable infrastructure for housing the women, Vermeulen said. Besides a large LGBTQ community, we have one of the most accessible immigration courts in the country. Immigration courts in places near the border like El Paso are overwhelmed, Vermeulen told me. Even with positive support, there's a 90% case rejection rate, as well as accessible health care through Healthy SF and other institutions that can help address the health and trauma needs of the women. We have very uh, rich corporations with a huge gay contingent that could potentially come to the aid of members in their community in distress. Uh, Vermeulen is blunt about. <laughs> oh, excuse me, uh, is about the, uh, blunt about the responsibility that comes with committing to sponsorship. You're dealing with a group of people who need a lot of support and care. It's not like adopting a kitten. You're taking an actual human being with individual needs. She told BuzzFeed in an interview. Vermeulen told me a lot of women don't know they're HIV positive or about other health issues until they've received some care. These are women who have been through a lot. We received an outpouring of support for our work, but now we need favorable sponsors to take the next step and help, Vermeulen said. Okay, so I'll be sharing this uh, again online and also on Twitter. Wow, some mighty sound effects we have there. Uh, You can follow me on Twitter as well, at Roman Reimer, R-O-M-A-N-R-I-M-E-R. I'll be sharing that right now as well. So another way is to, to share information with folks. If you know folks who are able to host, please get the word out. <sighs> Deep sigh. I sigh a lot on the show. There's a lot to be overwhelmed about. However, if folks are able to come forward and help out, please do. And or spread the word. Because odds are, we know someone who is able to. Moving along. Ugh. I to get very depressed doing the show. Um, just witnessing what's happening and what has been happening for a while and just naming it, putting it out there. And at the same time, finding ways to be proactive and for ways that folks can speak up. 
Uh, this is a, a petition that comes from uh, Color of Change. You can find it at colorofchange.org, and I believe we've also shared it on the Weekly Review website as well. I will do that at the next music break, in case I haven't already. Uh, Alabama police killed this black man. Now DA Danny Carr must charge them. <sighs> Amantic Bradford Jr. was only 21 years old, with a whole future ahead of him, but now he is gone, all because the police executed him. It all happened right on the evening of Thanksgiving Day when an active shooter was at a shopping mall in Hoover, Alabama. There was chaos everywhere, but it all turned tragic when an off-duty Hoover police officer working as a security guard at the mall shot and killed Amantic. Amantic's family says he has a license to carry a firearm and went inside the mall to only protect people. The case is already becoming a mess with the Jefferson County District Attorney Mike Anderson, or excuse me, Mike Anderton, uh, just being removed from office, and the police keep changing their story and telling more lies. The Hoover Police Department has yet to release the name of the officer who killed Amantic, and the officer remains on paid administrative leave. Fucking disgusting. At first, he was praised for stopping the gunmen, and gunmen's in quotation marks. Then the next day, in a statement, the police department said, based on evidence, Amantic Bradford Jr. was not the shooter, and the actual shooter remains at large. Then police backtracked once again and said Amantic brandished a gun, uh, but now the Hoover Police Department issued another statement saying Amantic simply had a gun in his hand. There is video footage from the officer's body camera that is now in the hands of the Alabama Law Enforcement Agency, ALEA, and it is unclear if it will be released to the public. The police killing of Amantic Bradford, Bradford Jr. <sighs> is just another heartbreaking reminder that black people are constant targets and threats in this country, even when making the sacrifice to protect others. Just two weeks ago in Illinois, Jamel Robertson, a black man who worked as a security guard and a permit to, to carry a firearm at a bar, stopped a restrained, stopped a restrained person who was firing a gun only for police to arrive and shoot and kill Jamel instead. Enough is enough. Families are left to mourn and search for answers while officers continue to stay on the job and kill people in our communities. Now that Jefferson County District Attorney Mike Anderton has been removed from office, it is up to acting District Attorney Danny Carr to investigate the shooting death of Amantic Bradford Jr. and charge the officer. This DA cannot let a killer cop walk free. Below is a letter we sent to Alabama Jefferson County District Attorney Danny Carr. And they have the petition. It says, uh, a excuse me, District Attorney Danny Carr, we demand that you charge and prosecute the officer who killed Amantic Bradford Jr. The young man was only 20, 21 years old. Now the family is seeking and deserve justice. We are concerned about how much the Hoover Police Department is covering up and releasing false and conflicting information about the killing of Amantic Bradford Jr. Dist District attorneys must stop ignoring the killing of black people. Police are not above the law. We demand transparency and accountability. So again, if you go to colorofchange.org, and I will also share this on our Weekly Review webpage. <sighs> Fuck. Um, oh, I don't, uh, yeah, we'll share that information. Uh, please sign the petition and help get the word out.
and welcome back to weekly review thank you sylvester for that beautiful song ah, we'll do a there's a great little place across the street from the radio station donut terrace they have great uh tacos burritos pupusas tortas so 21 21 the corner of 21st in florida if you happen to be in the neighborhood and feel like a really good home-cooked meal please check out donut terrace yay Ah, okay. On to some stories, more stories. Also, come by Mutiny Radio. There's shows here every day of the week. Lots of different shows, a lot of different shows. And also, if you're interested in doing a show here of your own, that's totally a possibility. And and or also renting the space. It's uh, one of the few places. Unfortunately, there's lots of smaller businesses end up closing in San Francisco with the high cost of rent and evictions. And thankfully, we're still here. So if you're interested in supporting a place that's that's still here and or producing work, uh, live shows, uh, this is a great venue. And you can also get a free recording. It's broadcast anywhere that folks have internet access as well. So just wanting to plug the station and come by and hang out, have a good time. Also recognizing that it's a Friday afternoon and that's not everyone's... Uh, not time that everyone's available also i'm also commenting i will comment that i do have i've had a lot of great guests on the show in the previous years and i haven't had guests on the last couple weeks and i deeply regret that and that's something that we're working on so for the next year we hope to have a lot of really great folks call in and come in and i always just learn so much uh, from activists and from artists who share their work just a lot of great folks the show is so much better with more people i acknowledge that and it's uh scheduling has been a bit of an issue so hopefully we'll have some more great folks come in next year and also if you'd like to listen to eventually we'll have a web page up i keep on i say it as if it will magically happen however i would like very much to be able to go back in the past five years and go through the shows initially i was keeping really good notes of what happened on each show and drop the ball on that one so maybe i'll go back and do that there are a lot of great folks I've had on the show, really great musicians, and as I mentioned, organizers and activists, and just so much, so many great conversations. So eventually we'll have a website and a place where folks can go and, and listen to previous, you can still listen to previous episodes. However, it'd be helpful if you knew what you were looking for. So we'll, we'll do that at some point. And by we, I, I know we use the general we, I, sh- I should be asking for some help on this one. If you'd like to help out, that would be great open to bartering and other other ways to compensate you for your labor so get in touch if that's something that you would like to help out with i would greatly appreciate it coming up (sighs) cops doing harm which is what i guess they're known for sf cop and racist text scandal linked to twenty four thousand dollar theft from elderly neighbor as well as a bank robbery. I'm of the opinion that I don't see bank robberies as necessarily evil. It's a way of taking back from the rich, so that's a whole other situation. Uh, <laughs> but, oh, gosh. All right. This was written by Michael Barba, and it came out on December 20th. It's from the San Francisco Examiner. Before a San Francisco police officer implicated in the racist text message scandal, which automatically should have resulted in him being fired, well, we shouldn't, I mean, we should move to put funds towards uh, rehabilitating people instead of criminalizing people. And not a not a fan of uh, the work that law enforcement does to many communities. Okay, 
I'm going to leave my comments aside. I'll read the article and then perhaps I'll have my comments in the article. We'll, we'll see how, we'll see how we go. Uh, before a San Francisco police officer implicated in the racist text message scandal allegedly robbed a bank in the Sunset District, prosecutors say the 20-year veteran stole $24,000 from an elderly person with dementia. <sighs> If there was a camera in the studio, I would look at the camera and just, yep. Officer Rain Olson Doggerty is not only facing a federal bank robbery charge for allegedly walking out of an East-West bank. Why not? I mean, if you're going to rob a bank, rob like a big one. Anyway, I'm just, I'm thinking out loud here. You know, Bank of America, Wells Fargo, some of the more evil ones. Okay, I'm. All right. Okay. Last month, with more than $9,000 in stolen cash, but a felony theft from an elder charge uh, in San Mateo County. Peninsula prosecutors said Thursday that Doggerty stole the money from a 76-year-old neighbor in Burlingame who hired him to assist with chores. He allegedly captured on surveillance video 30 different times, withdrawing a total of $13,095 from the neighbor's bank account. A total of $24,000 went missing from the account between last September and December, according to the San Mateo County District Attorney's Office. San Mateo County prosecutors charged Doggerty with felony theft from an elder and four counts of possession of a controlled substance on July 24th, four months before the federal prosecutors say he robbed a bank in the sunset. Just like you say of anybody we have to deal with who's committed a crime. These are all human beings we're talking about. Okay, it's an interesting sentence. Police Chief Bill Scott told reporters Thursday, there's a human component to this and it's really heartbreaking to see a police officer in that position. Wow. So, oh, okay. Wow. Yeah, that's... So if someone else who actually needs the funds maybe steals food to survive, that's somehow... And they get arrested for that. But if a police officer who already has a really high salary steals from an elderly person, we need to look at the human side of it. I mean, we should always be looking at the human side of it. However, I think it's just so hypocritical that when it's a police officer involved, that's when (sighs) kid gloves, it's just the, yeah, just, oh, let's, let's be nice about it. Okay. Anyway, (sighs) I, I, I said I wouldn't be able to make it through the article without my own personal comments. Okay. Ugh. In 2015, Doggerty, 44, filed a lawsuit on behalf of himself and eight unnamed officers in an attempt to skirt punishment for sending racist and homophobic text messages. Again, should have been fucking fired then. He should have just been... F- okay. The lawsuit alleged that former police chief Craig Sir waited too long to seek discipline against the officers for sending the messages between 2011 and 2013. The officers initially won the case, but an appellate court overturned the decision. Earlier this month, some of the disciplinary cases for the officers who remain with the department finally reached the police commission. There was a court ruling that the commission can go forward with the case, and that's what's happening. But there's still a process involved, Scott said. We can't just arbitrarily release people without due process. They have links to um, the text messages with some words that are censored. So we can't read them. Uh, the allegations. Okay, the allegations. <laughs> That's the next title of this. I. Oh. There's a many reasons why I can't see myself on a 
like a mainstream news radio program or TV program, uh, I would just get so angry. Okay. I mean, I already am angry. I just, I would probably swear a lot more and add in my own personal perspectives. And I don't know if the mainstream news would like that. Anyway, the allegations on December 1st, 2017, the San Francisco police department executed a search warrant at Doherty's home and allegedly found cocaine, oxycodone, lorazepam, and diazepam, according to prosecutors. The SFPD also found cat food purchased on the neighbor's bank card. Okay. Prosecutor said Doherty has a cat, but the neighbor with dementia does not have any pets. It's unclear why Doherty hasn't, wasn't charged until the summer. Probably because he was a cop. That's my guess. <sighs> Doherty bailed out of jail on $100,000 on... And I'm also going to, since I'm commenting on pretty much after every paragraph or sentence, and it just, it's ridiculous how there are some folks who are innocent who can't, are still in, in jail because they can't afford, they can't post bail. I don't have the numbers in my mind specifically right now, but I do know that there's a very large proportion, proportion? No. Population of folks who are in jail simply because they don't have the funds to post bail. And folks end up often. Some people end up even dying in jail because they can't post bail. Meanwhile, this guy can just bail himself out, get bailed out $100,000. Okay. On November 29th, he allegedly walked into a bank on Irving Street in San Francisco and demanded money from the teller, leaving with more than $9,000 in cash. The SFPD circulated a surveillance photo of the robber. Oh! The FBI said in court records that two SFPD internal affairs investigators identified the suspect as Doherty. He was arrested Tuesday on suspicion of bank robbery and charged the following day. The San Francisco Police Officers Association, which hired attorneys to represent Doherty and the other officers in the racist text lawsuit, said in a statement Thursday that it was disgusted by the alleged criminal actions. We are sworn to uphold the law and are dedicated to honorably serving all San Franciscans. Uh-huh. Yeah. The SFPOA said, this individual should be held accountable for the shameful act he is accused of and if found guilty through due process, he should face the appropriate consequences. We appreciate those SFPD members who assisted the FBI in this investigation. I have a feeling that if cops were actually about to go like arrest one another, like they would, the rest of us would be a lot safer. There wouldn't be uh, homeless sweeps. I just feel like, Yeah. Maybe that should be a thing that they just work on investigating one another, putting it out there. I don't think they listen to the show. However, putting it out there in the universe, <sighs> an attorney representing Doherty in the San Mateo County case was not immediately available for comment. The case was scheduled to be heard at a preliminary hearing in October, but was rescheduled until February. A federal public defender for Doggerty did not respond to a request for comment. Doggerty appeared in federal court Wednesday for arraignment on the bank robbery charge and is expected to return for a detention hearing Friday. He's being held at Glen Dyer Jail in Oakland. The FBI said Doggerty was suspended from the SFPD in connection with the San Mateo County investigation, Duggerty was on the payroll until the SFPD placed him on unpaid status July 24th when San Mateo County prosecutors filed criminal charges. City payroll records show he earned around $129,000 a year in base pay. 
So that doesn't include overtime or anything. $129,000 a year. And he's still stealing from his fucking neighbors. Jeez. Wow. I, <laughs> I've never, wow. Okay. It's unclear where his disciplinary case stands related to the text message scandal because of state law sealing such records from the public and the story has been updated to include additional information. Again, you could find that the SF examiner. Wow. Uh, Wow. Okay. (laughs) That's, that's, yeah. All right. It's, yep. Going to leave that there. We've got another story. Ugh. 45 discharges HIV-positive military members. This is from Instinct Magazine, and it came out December 20th, written by Randy Slovacek. The 45 administration has quietly begun to discharge HIV-positive soldiers from the U.S. military, despite the fact that they qualify for active duty according to fitness assessments and medical treatment and strong support from their commanding officers. Two airmen were informed shortly before Thanksgiving, they always love to do this shit before the fucking holidays because they're fucking cruel bastards, that they were found, quote-unquote, unfit for continued military service. They are suing Defense Secretary Jim Mattis, who just recently, stepped down that he was stepping down after receiving the news they were being discharged the lawsuit filed by lambda legal and outserve sldn in conjunction with the law firm winston and stronin argues the pentagon's decision violates the constitution's equal protection clause and federal law from the washington post both Both active duty airmen tested positive for HIV last year during Air Force screenings after they started antiretroviral treatments. Their doctors deemed them asymptomatic and physically fit to deploy, and their commanders backed their continued service. They intended to pursue lengthy Air Force careers after serving for more than half a decade in logistics and maintenance roles. Last month, however, two airmen received word that they had been deemed unfit for military service and would be discharged. The stated reason, the U.S. military bans personnel with HIV from deploying to the Middle East, where the majority of Air Force members are expected to go. Both airmen say they can deploy with no problem as long as they take a supply of medication with them. According to the CDC, most people diagnosed with, um, as HIV positive who take antiretroviral medications on a regular basis find themselves undetectable with undetectable viral ro- viral <laughs> viral loads, which means the virus cannot be transmitted to others. One of the airmen told the Washington Post he'd already been deployed to the Middle East twice, and both times his duty didn't require him to leave his base where proper medical facilities were available. Neither men were given the option of alternative jobs, which they say they would have accepted. In February this year, the 45 administration announced its deploy or get out policy, which ordered the Pentagon to identify service members who cannot be deployed to military posts outside of the United States for more than 12 consecutive months and to separate them from military service because current U.S. military policy labels service members living with HIV as non-deployable. They face immediate discharge under this 45 policy since 1991, all HIV positive applicants have been banned from joining the U S military. <sighs> Instinct recently uh, wrote 
about Navy cadet Kevin Deese, who was discharged in 2014, one month before graduating from the U.S. Naval Academy after a routine blood test revealed he was positive. Scott Shodas, Council and HIV Project Director at Lambda Legal, issued a statement which read in part, it's disgusting that the, the 45 administration is sending some men and women in uniform home for the holidays without jobs simply because of their HIV status. Those These decisions should be based on science, not stigma, he added. Lambda Legal is suing to stop these separations and will not stop fighting until 45 understands that there is not a job in the world a person living with HIV cannot safely perform, including the job of soldier. Hmm. Whew. So again, you can find that article at instinctmagazine.com. And I believe we've also posted it. Yes, we have. If you go to facebook.com forward slash weekly rev. Um, there's a, uh, I like talking about history on the show because it's important to know where we've come from and what's, and also there's so much that hasn't been taught in schools and things that I find out. I'm like, oh, wow, that's important. We should share that information. There, all right, we'll see. Uh, wish I had uh, gauge listenership here. Um, perhaps we'll play some music in the meantime. I'll drink some water and then we'll get into uh, some history. And this is, we'll talk about Emma. Tanayuka and the 1938 Pecan Shellers Strike. You can find this article at libcom.org. Uh, the article was written back in 2016. And again, so just important to understand history and what we, where we come from. All right, here's some more Sylvester. We'll be back in a bit. And uh, let's see here. Right on the line Where 
welcome back. That was Sylvester with One Night Only from this is from the 12 by 12 collection. Really great collection of songs holding the CD or the CD case at least in my hands back in the day when we had I really appreciate being able to hold the the music, the albums, liner notes, everything. Ah. <sighs> And I also recognize a CD is not the same as a record. And yeah, it's just interesting now with end up playing music off the computer a lot of the time. And perhaps it's time to go back to more textile. I don't know what I'm talking about. I do. Uh, we'll just get into the next. Uh, <laughs> there's no one here to banter with at the moment. So here we go. This is from lipcom.org. Emma Tyan. Uh, Tenayuka and the 1938 Pecan Sheller Strike. This was posted in February of 2016. Again, if you go to libcom.org, they have a lot of historical articles. I've learned a lot from this site, so please do check it out. A short account of the life of Emma Tenayuka and the Texas Pecan Sheller Strike largely of largely Hispanic workers in which she played a leading role. In Depression-era South Texas, a young Mexican-American woman broke tradition when she stood up for oppressed workers in her community and made an important contribution to the fight for social justice. Vilified by the conservative establishment that controlled San Antonio, she became a beloved leader to oppressed workers in in the Mexican-American community. They called her La Pasionera. La Pasionera. Largely an unheralded uh, figure today, Emma Tenayuka was well known in her day as a fearless and effective union activist at a time when it was rare for women to be accepted as leaders. She was a woman people attempted to write out of history, Mexican-American studies professor Carmen Tefoya said, uh, told the National Catholic Report in 20, 2008. Today, she said, we're writing her back in. Tenayuka was born in 1916 to a large family in San Antonio. Her grandfather, Francisco Zapata, helped her dad, uh, helped her read, uh, helped her read newspapers as a young, young girl and often took her to San Antonio's Plaza del Zacate a gathering spot where community leaders shared news and talked about politics. The discussions instilled in her a lifelong passion for learning and social justice. By 15, she was a gifted, well-read high school student who could debate the issues of day in English and Spanish. Most families in her community struggled to survive on low-wage jobs, and they faced racial and gender discrimination. Many were farm workers who were exempt from coverage by the National Labor Relations Act of 1935, which granted union organizing rights to industrial workers. Those who chose to stand up for better wages faced unjust firings, jail, or the threat of having loved ones deported. At age 16, Tenayuka joined a picket line of workers on strike against the Fink Cigar Company in 1933, resulting in her first arrest. After graduating from Brackenridge High School in 1934, she helped organize two branches of the Ladies' Garment Workers Union in San Antonio and became a familiar figure in every protest by Hispanic workers in the region, writing leaflets, visiting workers' homes, and offering encouragement to workers demanding better pay and dignity on the job. Before long, people from her community often sought the young bilingual woman's assistance on everyday matters. She became their voice, Tafola said. In 1937, she helped from the National Workers' Alliance, NWA, and became its general secretary. 
The organization fought for jobs, a a minimum wage, the right to strike, and an end to beatings of Latinos by Border Patrol agents, whether they were quote-unquote illegal, I would say undocumented or not. Before long, the organization had 10 chapters. In the 1930s, San Antonio's 400 shelling plants prepared 50% of the nation's pecans for market. While the nut-cracking process had been largely mechanized, most producers found it profitable to exploit Mexican-American women to do the final nut-meat picking work by hand instead of purchasing additional machinery. Many of them worked in crowded, poorly lit, poorly ventilated buildings. The cramped, dusty working conditions were blamed for a high rate of tuberculosis among the workers, many of whom also lived in crowded housing. In early 1938, the company sought to further increase their profits by cutting the workers' pay from six or seven cents per pound to as little as three cents. Approximately 12,000 women walked off the job on January 31, 1938, and unanimously elected Tenayuga the strike leader. These people are already starving, and they are being asked to live on half, Tafoya said. Nonetheless, Tenayuka had to be an incredibly per- persuasive person to talk them into a strike, given the threats they faced for standing up to the owners. Tenayuka inspired people. She was fearless, Tafoya said. The workers organized under the International Pecan Shellers Union, IPCU, Local 172, and were soon joined by another 6,000 to 8,000 workers. When pecan production ground to a halt, the owners fought back. Tenayuka said, Tenayuka and hundreds of strikers were gassed and arrested by San Antonio police. Some were beaten as well. With the NWA rallying community support, the strike turned into a citywide uprising of the poorest and the most oppressed people in San Antonio. 37 days after the strike began, the pecan producers agreed to arbitration. A few weeks later, the workers had won a wage increase to 7 or 8 cents a pound. What started out as an organization for equal wages turned into a mass movement against starvation, for civil rights, for a minimum wage law, Tenayuka recalled in 1987. The strike also marked the first successful sally in what became the Mexican-American social justice movement, notes University of Texas historian Don Carlton. Meanwhile, Tenayuka's activism had not only won her the enmity of the city's leaders and pecan producers, she was also persecuted for an association with the Communist Party due to her brief marriage to Homer Brooks, a party leader. Though Tenayuka had stepped down as the leader of the pecan workers' strike when she married him, her name was nonetheless in the newspapers every day, and she was arrested several times on trumped-up charges. To the establishment, she was a devil incarnate, Tafoya noted. She dared to marry a white man. They just hated her. A friend would tell her, I have to read the paper to find out if find out if you are in, in or out of jail, Tafoya added. The hatred exploded on August 25, 1939, when Ku Klux Klan members and several thousand others stormed San Antonio's municipal auditorium, where Tenayuka was speaking to a gathering of 150 activists who were demanding union rights, a minimum wage, social security, and racial equality, goals that a local newspaper derided as a quote-unquote socialist plot. The angry mob that had formed outside the building at the newspaper's urging through rocks and bricks and threatened to lynch Tenayuka. She escaped the largest riot ever in San Antonio via a secret passageway. Blacklisted and threatened, Tenayuka moved to Houston where she was able to find work under a pseudonym. She later moved to San Francisco where she earned a college degree in 1952 and became a school teacher. She returned to San Antonio in the late 1960s and taught migrant workers' children how to read until she retired in 1982. 
Taniyuka died in 1999 at 83. Though out of the limelight for many decades, Tenayuka never lost her passion for social justice and empowerment, notes her niece, Cheryl Tenayuka, a San Antonio attorney who, with Tafoya, has written a children's book, That's Not Fair, Emma Tenayuka's Struggle for Justice, published by Wings Press. The two are working on a full-length biography for adults about the trailblazer. Wow, that sounds really interesting, and I learned a lot. So again, this article is at libcom.org, and we have shared it on our weekly review webpage. And the book, again, is called uh, That's Not Fair, Emma Tenayuka's Struggle for Justice. I think I'm going to pick that up for some kids. That sounds great. Cool. Okay, we've got some more information uh, coming up. There's a video. So, oh, how to even introduce this thing. Uh, so there's Birthright, which... Uh, it's super fucking complicated. Well, it's not that complicated. It's uh, so there's a video that um, was just uh, created very recently, and it's uh, American Jews really showing up in terms of with birthright and asking a lot of questions, which is why folks who go on birthright apparently are not allowed to speak with folks who are Palestinians. That's something that's not allowed. And also, uh, Sheldon Adelson, who's super fucking evil. And his buddies with 45 um, has been funding Birthright. And so it's also just, the video kind of goes into asks a lot of questions. So I'm going to set that up. I'm going to play some music in the meantime. Uh, and then we'll get into this video. And we've we've shared it on the Weekly Review webpage so you can see it in full. It goes on for a little bit over an hour. So we'll start playing it and we'll see. We'll, we'll see what, what, yeah, you'll you'll hear it, I guess. So that's coming up uh, after the song.
And welcome back to the weekly review. Have a little brief announcement before we get into the video slash, well, it'll be audio because we're on the radio that we're going to be playing. And that is from, if you go to the, at the Twitter handle is at Nyla the Musical, and that's at N Y L A T H E M U S I C A L. Um, if you are a black, trans, or gender non conforming person in New York City who will be food insecure this holiday season, the Okra Project will be providing free personal chef prepared meals in your home. And all the chefs are black TGNC folks. And they say to DM them for details. And this was posted on December 19th, 2018. I'm going to share this right now on the Facebook weekly review page so you can see this person's. Uh, Twitter handle, so you can get in touch with them if you or folks you know are interested in this. All right, it has been shared, and again, it's the Twitter handle is is at Nyla the Musical. So grateful for folks doing that. <sighs> okay, on to this. The video is about an hour and a half long, and I haven't seen all of it. Um, I have listened to parts of it, and I've learned some from this. So we're gonna just we're gonna play some. And uh, starting off at about the, let's see, there's about an, um, an hour and five minutes left. So we're going about maybe 20 minutes in, we're going to start. So this will just be a, a portion of it. And we've also shared this on the Weekly Review Facebook page, so you can see it in full. And we'll be back uh, after a bit. Um, I don't know if you had more to like no, say think, anything. I think just saying that... Yeah, the cost of this trip is our silence, and we we have connections. We want to go see the occupation that Birthright doesn't want us to go see. So I think that that's, that's what we're going to do. And people are welcome to join us. We would really welcome that. But, we, yeah, I don't I don't feel comfortable being on this trip anymore, especially with the relationship we have with Birthright leaders. Is, is there anything... I was going to say, is there anything we can directly do... I mean, if Within you're willing to, our control. if you're willing to call Birds right, right now and ask them if we can go to East Jerusalem and meet say, with our I mean, contacts, if can, you're willing to, we can absolutely make a call. Um, like I said, we we aren't really like I don't know how much control like staff members have in terms of like the schedule. Um, so that's pretty much like set up. Um, but we can absolutely make a phone call. If that's you know, and like see what we can can get and see what we hear back. You, I can't make any promises at all because that's just like not my that's not like my position on this trip at all. But like we can, I'm willing to do that absolutely. And again, I don't want to be redundant. At the end of the day, it does just come down to trying to show a Jewish perspective. And I'm sorry if that feels like it's propaganda or. That something's being pushed or it's not the truth but there are always three sides there's going to be one side it's going to be the Jewish side the Israeli side the Palestinian side and then somewhere in the middle that is the reality this is just trying to show this is a Jewish funded trip by the state of Israel and it's trying to show that perspective and I'm sorry that you feel like it's propaganda I'm sorry that you feel like you're being silenced I'm sorry that you feel that ideas are being pushed on you because for me as as a leader I mean we volunteer that's not our intention to have anyone feel that way we want to to have access to information and to knowledge but also keeping in mind again I've, I've said it a lot of times and I'm, I'm sorry if it's it, it is the Jewish perspective of the situation 
I guess I would just complicate that by saying I am Jewish. And like, there are a lot of American Jews who don't feel like this is the No, no, and that, that's understandable, but as a, as a whole for the country of Israel, this is the, the perspective. Again, they are trying to portray something, right? And I don't personally view it as propaganda. <clears throat> It is that one side, and I'm sorry if you feel that that side's being forced to keep your other thoughts uh, and what you perceive to be the reality or what is the reality of the situation as something that's not discussed. As we said before, we're always open to conversation. I, I don't have the access to the knowledge and the information to have that conversation. Fast forward a little bit here. They speak with somebody else. Our trip leader is still on the phone with Birthright. So let's see if they can give us an answer soon. All right, I'm gonna fast forward a little bit more. Yeah, I mean, I I don't know. Um, right now, we're badly so I'm not sure what the protocol. Maybe even my uh, my opinions, okay, my political opinions, even maybe close to yours. That's Graham's and Rachel. Oh. Slippery. Yeah, I'm happy to take it. Yeah. You're gonna be okay. In a few seconds, we we are about to leave. Thank you. You're welcome. Uh, oh, oh, I just got to email, so maybe things are short. Okay, this is, I think, what I was looking for. Rewind a little bit. And again, this is a video that was shared on Facebook yesterday. Make sure you go to Weekly Review. Facebook.com. It's a long video, so we're just waiting for this question uh, to begin. Because we've been together like the past few days, if you guys want to say something to the group, since we're happy to. Yeah, we can say something to the group. Just, I, I don't want to limit you guys. Just, we still want to try to get a Jerusalem. Yeah, totally. We're just, just keep that in mind. Yeah, we're just finishing this, and we'll say something briefly, and, and we'll head off. Folks, American Jews who are on the birthright trip who are looking to question the policies of birthright and what folks are allowed to do, and also the messages that they're receiving and the information yeah, that they're receiving you know, or misinformation um, that they're receiving. Yeah, we just we, like you've seen how like we've been how, like how our questions have been responded to on this trip. And when, when are you leaving? Now. Yeah. Um, we're gonna go talk to people in East Jerusalem. And, and the we West have some Bank. Connections there. Yeah. yeah. Um, because we just felt like at this point, kind of like you know how we've been talking about how basically this trip feels like propaganda and like a bribe, and like we're just not willing to accept it anymore. Like as long as this trip is not gonna allow us to um, talk to Palestinians and like learn about the occupation, and it's gonna like repress our um, our you know feelings and views and values, like we're not. We can't stay. 
No, we're leaving now and we're gonna take a cab. Maybe back in the States. Okay, we're supposed to just like talk to the bus. Yeah. So. Can we get the mic? Yeah, sure. So here you need to plug in your phone. Hello? Hello? Um, do you want to talk? Yeah, I'm happy to. And should be starting any minute now. Thanks for listening. Again, this is playing a video shared by Hanukkah Harry. Okay. Uh, I'm looking review. Hi, can you guys hear me? Okay. I have had such a fun time with you guys. It's been amazing to meet all of you. Um, Harry and I really love each and every one of you. So thank you for just like being on this trip with us. Um, but we are going to walk off the trip because we um, really want to hear a more balanced perspective than what we've been hearing and we've been asking and we have, as you have seen, been repeatedly intimidated. So I have something written down because I got really nervous. So if you don't mind bearing with me. Um, starting from when we got here on our first trip, Maxi introduced this trip as a gift. Um, because it is because you didn't pay for it. That's totally true. We did not pay for right, it. Um, We're this, trying to go to Jerusalem. Yeah, I get that. Um, this is a gift funded by Sheldon Adelson. And this is how he wants us to experience Israel. Um, he told us, Maxie told us to ask questions, be curious and critical. And we tried to ask questions, as you guys have seen. Like if we'd be going to Hebron or ask about water access in the occupied territories. When we asked about water, we, um, we were yelled at and told. We saw, we were there. Yeah, that the bus wasn't, um, the bus wasn't interested. Right. We, we were there. It happened all the Why didn't Maxie want us all to talk about it? Um, he went on an angry rant inches away from our faces, telling us that water scarcity is entirely the fault of Palestinians. And we know that's not true. Israel um, and the military controls access to water for 2 million Palestinians who live in Gaza, where 97% of the water is unsafe to drink, according to the UN. Um, he said this isn't his job as an Israeli to care about that. Um, I felt really intimidated and scared to ask any other questions. And I know that other people on the trip have told me that they also felt too intimidated to ask questions. So basically this trip feels like a bribe to keep silent. And I don't feel comfortable with that. Birthright is asking us to check our values at the door and keep us from standing up for the progressive values we believe in. Um, and fight in, for in the U.S. Birthright keeps us from having an authentic connection to the Jewish community and identity. Maxie told us our questions were irrelevant and that it was not the time to ask questions, um, that it's ne it was never the right time. Um, birthright claims to be a gift, but my experience has taught me that it's not a gift, it is a bribe. Intended to keep our generation from seeking and fighting, seeing and fighting the occupation. We were told it was irrelevant and inappropriate and we should wait until the correct time in the itinerary. But last night was the right time and we had 90 minutes 
and it was a conversation with someone whose entire career is based on training people to um, deflect any criticisms against Israel and to defend Israel at all costs. Um, before we went into the conversation, we were told that the presentation was based on facts and that you can't argue with facts. Um, so the message is basically saying that we, we shouldn't be asking any questions. When we did, we were shut down, and that has been the case throughout the day, for throughout the trip. Um, that Americans can't possibly understand that this isn't the appropriate time. The messaging has shifted to, why are you attacking us? Why is birth rate so afraid of just us asking questions? Um, Maxi said these things because birth rate does not allow him to say anything else. This is birth rate's position. Last night when we asked if we'd be able to talk to Palestinians, he said that birthright would never allow that. We feel bullied and intimidated into silence. And this, Maxi has led hundreds of trips. Birthright has hundreds of thousands of Jews come to Israel. This isn't a fluke. This is the birthright agenda. And Sheldon Adelson is funding it, right? Sheldon Adelson is the biggest funder of Trump and birthright. So this is a pro-occupation, extremely right-wing agenda. Um, that sets the terms for our generation's experience of Israel. So last night we did have the opportunity to talk to an Arab-Israeli um, outside of the trip itinerary, obviously. Um, he shared with us that his experience living as a non-Jew in Israel, and it was absolutely one of the most moving conversations I've ever had. It was exactly what we wanted out of this trip, to feel genuinely and honestly connected to someone um, but that's not what we've been getting through the itinerary. And we don't understand why everyone has been denied that opportunity. Um, the point is not that we got what we wanted for ourselves, but that like our entire Jewish community gets to understand the truth and figure out what to do next. Um, this we're almost done. You don't read your text that you prepared at home against Israel and birthright. It's not fair, and you are photographing to put it on this. We said, say hello to the group. You used birthright to come to Israel unfair. You used the money against it. Now, just say hello to your buddies and leave the group. I had a whole day, a few hours. It's not the, the right place and time. You didn't arrange it well to read text that you brought. You don't speak from your heart. You brought a prepared text. Now I understand what you did due to. Guys, say but hello to the group let and let me start the day. Come on. Stop now filming and talk, talk from your heart. Talk okay, from your heart. Talk, talk from your Look, brain, but don't read me a written text that you prepared. I'll talk it's from not my heart. fair. It's not okay. fair. Come on, guys. We have a day. Come on. Friends. They can talk as much as they want, but not read really text that they prepared in advance. And photograph it and put it on mail. That is not fair. That is against birthright. That's wow. BDS policy. Wow. That you don't photograph because it's not fair. Come on, I have a long day. Can I, I, I only said say hello to the group because I have a day and I want to start. I said I was going to do that. Okay, go ahead. Okay. Because she read text. She didn't spoke to the people. Look, friends, it's been really... We really feel like we've made a lot of friendships and we do care about... Um, everybody Lucky on this trip, and um, and that's not what this about. This is about, and we want you to know that. But we, but it's because we care about the people who go on this trip, and because we care about our generation and the messages that we get, and oftentimes our only chance to go to come here um, is this very one-sided perspective. On account of birthright. 
on account and of against the death threat in Israel. Thank you, sir. Okay, guys, we, we have a day to, to leave. Come on. Okay, bye, that guys. That is not farewell. That is brainwashing. Come on. Not fair. All right, there's about 12 minutes left in the video. Thanks, guys. Take care of yourself. Nice meeting both of you. Me and too. Yeah, good luck. Thank you. Look at what you're doing. Yeah. Thanks. If they have yeah. prepared text to read, and he's photographing for people. Thanks, guys. Bye. 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 Wow. How are you feeling, hearing? Um, I feel like really. Um, you know, I, I also, like, I'm, I'm sad to say goodbye. Like, I really do think we made some connections uh, with people, and, um, and that's real. Like, you know, I care about my community. That's the whole reason, like, we we've been pushing. We have to get out of the way, though, <laughs> so the bus doesn't yeah, run over yeah. us. Um, I, like, I, I, you know, the whole thing is that we do care about our communities. We care about these people, but, um, you know, so it's, like, is doing exactly that. Like, like, this is the only way to do it, like, Rachel said earlier, like, this is the only way I feel Jewish being here is to deny this bribe and, and, um, and to reject this bribe and actually learn about the occupation. Um, and I just really wish that, um, the other people on our trip and, um, everybody else who gets to go on Birthright actually gets to see what we're about to see. Um, and it's really a shame that, uh, Birthright denies everybody that opportunity. Um, and, you know, and it's really a shame that, like, now they're going to go, you know, spend the next six days listening to Maxi talk about how we're, we are um, producing propaganda and that we are hijacking this trip and, um, and uh, you know, while he continues to give his one-sided perspective on the issue um, and, and refuse to offer um, an alternative perspective from Palestinians themselves. Um, all right, let's go find our luggage. Yeah. Um, how are you feeling, Rachel? Um, well, I'm really grateful that there were people on the bus who stood up for us. You know, Emily was like, let them talk. And yeah. I think that speaks to just the relationships that we made. There's so many people on that trip who I really, really love. Yeah. And I mean, that, we knew them for like four days. Right, right. But yeah, and, and, and that also like that, like, it's not like we are these like radicals just like, like suddenly like leading this trip and like, um, and doing something so outrageous like like even if they're not leading the trip they like people are kind of like yeah they kind of have a point um okay so let's pick up your luggage yeah I'm in all right so i feel like that gets to a lot of it i'm gonna right. so it's like put on some more music now we'll get back to some sylvester and then we'll uh, get more of the show and we'll be wrapping up around 150 today
right, and welcome back. That was Sylvester with Lovin' is really my game. Come up next, we have an article from SF Weekly that came out uh, on Monday, December 17th. Sex workers, advocates, challenge mission police. Tension is rising in the mission on how best to react to the neighborhood's sex workers. This was written by Noala Sawyer. And again, it's from SF Weekly on December 17th, 2018. Two city-endorsed, publicly-funded efforts surrounding sex workers in the mission are clashing hard. St. James Infirmary, yay, a sex worker health and safety clinic, launched a mobile unit in the neighborhood a little under a year ago. Each week, trained outreach staff go out late at night, offering sex workers who primarily find clients along on Cap and Shotwell streets, condoms, HIV testing, and mental support. Funded with a grant from Supervisor Hillary Ronan's office, it's a harm reduction model that's proven successful by meeting people where they're at and uh, where they are and providing the resources they need to take care of themselves. The overall harm in a risky profession like street-based sex work can be reduced. At the same time, Mission police officers, boo, are being asked to enforce the law around prostitution with a sex worker abatement unit created in response to some neighbors' complaints about the nightly activities. So some nights, sex workers can expect to find a friendly face in a peer-based model St. James has created. Others, they're arrested and cycled through the revolving door of the city's criminal justice system. Naturally, the dueling approaches have created a tension. The sex worker abatement unit has gone counter to our program. They tell us they appreciate our program, and yet at the same time, they are disappearing the people we are here to serve, said St. James Mission Outreach Coordinator Celestina Pearl at a gathering outside Mission Police Station on Monday. We are asking publicly, please truly prioritize the safety of sex workers with us. Safety was front and center at Monday's event on Valencia Street, which was held in honor of the International Day to End Violence Against Sex Workers. On paper, it appears that SFPD is on board. Earlier this year, they signed on to a policy put forward by advocates that granted immunity to sex workers who report incidents of violence to the police. But as efforts have ramped up to detain people soliciting sex or merely sweep them from one block to the next, that trust among sex workers is pretty much non-existent. The formation of the Mission Police Captain's Sex Work Abatement Unit to aggressively arrest sex workers, clients, and others contradicts SFPD's prioritizing safety for sex workers policy, said Rachel West of the SF, excuse me, of the U.S. Prostitutes Collective. Police crackdowns create a hostile and dangerous climate for sex workers who will be much less likely to report violence, rendering the policy useless. At the same time, the number of people taking their sex work to the streets is only rising, thanks to the backward federal law, FOSTA-SESTA, which intended to cut down on sex trafficking, but instead has shut down several popular sites people use to find and safely vet clients. But street-based sex work is now made more dangerous by a rapidly gentrifying mission, which, despite its contemporary multi-million dollar homes, has been a space where sex workers operate. The newfound wealth is pushing every kind of vulnerable community out of the neighborhood's limits, which inevitably sweeps up sex workers too. Not all mission residents are pro-legal enforcement and anti-prostitution. Tessa Brown is a co-founder of the new group called Rad Mission Neighbors, created to combat her neighbors' calls for sex work to be eradicated. Sex workers are our neighbors. We do not accept them being arrested, Brown said. We reject that what the police have been saying, that policing makes sex work more safe. 
We only have to remember the case of Celeste Guap to know that police officers do not make young women safe. Police have killed sex workers. Police can be sex offenders. We reject the police as a move to make sex workers more safe. We want an end to the increased arrest of sex workers in this neighborhood. That's not going to be an easy discussion to have. At Monday's press conference, when activists tried to enter the Mission Police Station to deliver a letter to Captain Gaetano Caltagiron, police locked the doors and refused to let them in. But the people who spoke up Monday aren't going anywhere. Who's our supervisor? Hillary Ronan asked Maxine Dugan of the Erotic Service Providers Legal Educational and Research Project, ESP. L-E-R-P. Funding the van is great, but funding police enforcement is not. We'll remember this next time you're up for re-election. Wow. So again, you can find this article at SF Weekly, and it came out on Monday. All right. It's about 141 here. Uh, we usually end the show around 150 or so. There's no Women's Magazine or Common Thread Collective this week. However, I believe they will be back next week, I think, on the 28th. Um, also please check out the archives, um, at mutinyradio.fm. So perhaps we'll, we'll end the show there. I know there's a lot that's happening in the work, in the work, in the world. And I wanted to get to at least a few things today. So thank you so much for listening. Uh, if you appreciated it, uh, please do tell a friend, get, get the word out. Feel free to subscribe. We're on iTunes. We'll get on other platforms too, at some point. Again, looking for some help. If folks are able, please do get in touch. And... Also, yeah, Mutiny Radio, there's lots of shows here every day of the week. Please support us. There's the Comedy Festival coming up in March. And if you'd like to support the show in particular, uh, you can do so if you go to patreon.com forward slash weekly rev. We greatly, um, gratefully accept any contributions of a dollar a month or higher. Anything is helpful. The first $100 raised a month goes directly to paying the dues to keep the, just to keep the roof over our heads here. So if you're able to please do check that out. I guess we'll end up the show with some more Sylvester, remembering Sylvester today and every day. And thanks again for listening, and we'll be back next week.
And coming up next will be Women's Magazine with Global Val, so stay tuned.
whatever. 